So today I'm going to be speaking to you from the ESV, and I know to a lot of you that means absolutely nothing. Um, if you know me, though, you know that I just believe we are incredibly blessed to have so many different translations and paraphrases of God's Word at our fingertips, quite literally. I love the readability of the NIV and the New Link, New Link, NLT. <laughs> what is that? The New NLT, New Living Translation. I really like the ESV and the New American Standard because they tend to be very precise in the way that they place things. And uh, I, I love to tease my King James friends and, and say to them that uh, I really love that because it sounds like Elizabethan literature. It sounds like Shakespeare. But I do love the King James as well. We are just blessed to have such a variety of translations before us. Today, I'll be using the English Standard Translation. And there is a Bible app event for this that will help you. If you have the Bible app, you click on a little menu and then you click on an event near you and uh, find the Kerbinsville Alliance one, and you can follow along. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians part of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3. I would also add this if you're thinking, I have a paper Bible and it's not an ESV. That's okay. Uh, use the version you have because as you see the subtleties in the translation from what I read and what's there, that can really enrich your understanding of what God might be saying in that text. Whatever version you have, use it. I had an elder in my last church and that church was kind of dealing with the Bible translation wars of the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I can remember uh, Merle said, uh, you know what version is best, Pastor? And I thought, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. What is it? And he said, whatever one you'll read. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, that's the best answer I've heard. So whatever you have, read it. Uh, we'll be looking at the ESV, but you can follow along in whatever you have. And what we're going to be looking at today is Dr. Simpson's fourfold gospel this is kind of what it means to be Christian Missionary Alliance. We see Jesus as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our coming King. Those were four things that Simpson chose to emphasize uh, through his ministry. And I think I mentioned this to you before. It was that same elder in my last church that said, we talk and talk about Dr. Simpson. We don't at Kermansville Alliance. I haven't done this for almost a decade. But uh, we talk and talk about Dr. Simpson. All he ever talked about was Jesus. Why can't we shut up about him and talk about Jesus? And uh, that's a good observation. But uh, if you'll bear with me for two more sermons, I will be mentioning Dr. Simpson's thinking because it has kind of formed who we are. And it's just good teaching for you to have. Um, today, what we're going to be looking at, last week we looked at Jesus, our Savior. Today, we're looking at Jesus, our Sanctifier. And uh, this really isn't just a look at the Alliance, though. This is a teaching that is pretty universal. This message, I believe, the concepts in it can be life-changing. And that's my desire for you, that it would be life-changing for you. So I kind of like to pray to that end as we begin. Would you unite your heart in prayer with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We are thankful for what it means to us and how you have worked to change our lives through your word. I pray that you would do that this morning. Pray that we could kind of grab a hold of what you have to say about this idea of this big $16 theological term, sanctification, that we can get it out of the textbook and get it onto our hearts and into our hearts. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just over two decades ago, there was a movie that was billed as being based on Shakespeare, The Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew is a lesser-known Shakespearean play, and in the last century, there were some people put together a musical called Kiss Me Kate that was based on The Taming of the Shrew. I happen to be in that musical, Kiss Me Kate. I just want you to imagine a long, skinny, six-foot, 245-pound, red-headed Steve Shields wearing green leotards and dancing around on a stage. If you ask me why are you not in musicals, I'm sold in therapy for those days of my life. <laughs> you know, it did catch my mind, though, or my eye when I saw 10 Things I Hate About You based on Shakespeare's play because I had that connection. And uh, the, the name of the movie was, anybody remember? 10 Things I Hate About You. 
Now, I'll be real honest and tell you, I intended to watch that movie, but I can't remember if I watched that movie, and there's a real good chance that it just didn't hold my attention, because that's the way movies tend to be sometimes. I'm ADD, probably, is why. But, but I'll tell you what did catch my attention is that title. Is that not a great title? Ten Things I Hate About You. I, wow. Uh, frankly, I don't, I don't think I could compose a list of ten things that I hate about anyone or even dislike about anyone with the exception of maybe one person. <laughs> There's that one person that it would be very easy for me to detail the ways in which this person annoys me to death. Things I dislike about this person, things I actually hate about this person. You know this person. He is me. He is me. Don't get me wrong. I don't need a pep talk on self-esteem or anything like that. I'm just acknowledging that when I look at myself in the mirror and I look deep inside my heart, there's way more than 10 things that I don't like about me. The big thing that kind of covers all of them is really what the Bible passage we're going to look at is speaking about today in 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to start in verse 12 in a minute. What we're going to see is this Christian pioneer. His name is Paul. He's writing to a church in Greece, and it's not in Athens, but it's in Corinth, Greece. And he's, he's talking to them about a problem that they have. They are Christians. They are a church. He calls them brothers. Brothers and sisters is how he would regard them. But they have a problem, and he's going to address it when he gets to chapter 3. We're going to pick up somewhere in the middle of chapter 2 in verse 12. You can follow along as I read. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Okay, so what the Bible's saying here is that if you're a believer, if you're trusting in Christ, having been saved, turned from your sin, trusting in him, then what you receive from God is nothing less than God himself. His spirit lives in your heart. The Holy Spirit lives in you. In the next verse, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So, okay, I get that. There are a lot of things in Christian faith that Christians understand that just aren't comprehensible to those who have never placed their trust in Jesus. In contrast, he says, in verse 15, he says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you because you've been made alive spiritually. You have the mind of Christ. Now he's going to talk about the problem. And I find it just really interesting. He's taken two chapters before he's gotten up to say, but. I got a problem with you people, (laughs) okay? Here's what he says in chapter three, verse one. I'm gonna put it on the screen. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. What? But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, there's a phrase in there that I wanna kind of pull out. Take a look at it on the screen. It's the phrase, people of the flesh, That's how the ESV and some other translations that like to be real precise, that's how they phrase it. The NIV translates it as worldly, which is a really good word for it. I can't address address you as spiritual, but worldly. You're more like people of the world than people of God. 
King James in 1611, in 1769, in the 1900 revision, and then in the New King James in 82, uses the same word consistently, carnal, which is a good word. Because carnal, anybody ever had chili con carne? That carne is the same word with carnal, or it's related, it means meat or flesh. And so the King James is pointing out, you're fleshly, you're people of flesh, you're not people of spirit. Really what it amounts to is simply having a sinful nature and living that way. He continues in verse 2 and he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready to receive it. Even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? By the way, the thing they're arguing about, and he'll go on to talk about this in the chapter. We're not going to read those verses, but he talks about they're arguing over who's the better preacher, who's the better missionary, who do they follow? I follow Paul, you follow Apollos. You know, who's better? And I don't think I like you because you don't like Apollos. I do like Apollos. I just like Paul. You know, and, and so it's destroying the fellowship that's there. Skip down to verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know? that you are God's temple. And I believe that's you plural. He's talking about them as an assembly, as a gathering. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that that temple. So when we allow our fleshly nature to do things that are bad, like divide us, (laughs) damaging the gathering, a gathering that God has chosen to call his fellowship, even more his temple, we're damaging something incredibly holy and amazing. When we behave in a fleshly way, as people of flesh, we damage the temple of God. So it kind of goes without saying, we probably ought to deal with this fleshliness that we have. And frankly, if you're a Christian who has turned to God and said, I want to follow Jesus, I believe he died for me, I love him and I will follow him, If you've opened your heart and his spirit lives in you, then your fleshliness is something you really dislike. It is the 10 things you hate about you. Think for just a moment about the things that people dislike about themselves. I came upon an article in a magazine, an online magazine, um, that was really, it was about healthy living uh, kind of magazine. And it listed, it had done a survey, it listed listed literally the 10 things people dislike most about themselves. And what struck me was that almost half of them had to do with our character and our sinful nature, that we really don't like our fleshliness. And some of the things they listed were the way we treat our friends. And if you think about it, I mean, who hasn't said something stupid to a friend and not been able to sleep that night until they squared it away with that friend? <laughs> when, when you say something inappropriate about a friend or you, you push too far, or you tease too hard, what, what do you think it was that led you to do that? You think that was the spirit of God leading you there? hashtag sarcasm. Of course it wasn't the spirit of God. It was your fleshly nature. Man, sometimes I really dislike the way I treat my friends. A second thing that people dislike about themselves is the way they treat strangers. Other drivers, have you seen them, right? And you think to yourself, well, they have it coming. I'm gonna tell you something. I'm a driver and I've seen some of you drive. (laughs) Yeah, they're no different than you. Or clerks in stores. Wow, if you've ever worked with the public, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're just doing their jobs. Or that person on the other end of the phone in customer support. 
your expected wait time is till Jesus comes back. <laughs> you know, they've got to be just as frustrated as you are about dealing with people who are frustrated that way. What, what was it that made you give them a piece of your mind? Was that the Spirit of God? Was he the one that led you to do that? <clears throat> Wrong answer. No, it, it was your flesh. Chances are it was your flesh. Sometimes I really hate the way I treat strangers. Something else on that list, that's actually two in one, was the way they treat their spouse and the way they treat their family. And I think all of us would say, yeah, there's sometimes I'm just ashamed of the way I treat my, my spouse and my family. A list like this kind of remind me that when it comes to the things we dislike about ourselves, good and evil are often involved. That, that right and wrong is often involved. E- even holiness and godlessness is involved. Many of the things that we dislike about ourselves are things that are simply sinful. Huh, wow. And on top of that, when you think about it, you know, these things are deeply embedded within our nature. Hmm. By the way, the, the survey didn't talk about shallower things. On, on that top 10 list, I didn't see anyone say, I don't like my hair. I didn't see anyone say, I don't like that I'm short. I didn't hear anyone say, I don't like it that my voice is squeaky. I didn't hear any of that, right? Those were not on the list. The things that trouble us are things deep inside our nature. They seem to be inseparable from us. And when they're fleshly, we just don't like them. And so we try to deal with them. And sometimes the way we deal with them is kind of creative, but always the way we deal with them from our own perspective, it falls short. When it comes to our sinful nature, sometimes our tendency is just to deny that our flesh exists. We try to hide it. I kind of wonder if that was a problem in Corinth because there in verse 1, Paul says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as flesh, uh, people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul felt compelled to point that out, to, to let them know there's something you are not aware of and you're denying it. Maybe you've even hidden it from yourself. Here's what it is. I have a friend who's fond of saying that he feels like the biggest people, the biggest thing people struggle with is secrets. <laughs> secrets about their flesh. No kidding. I think that is true of those who have spent a long time in church because often Christians can be very, very quick to point out our fleshly nature. Not in a good way, not to help us, but maybe in a self-justifying way. But I think it's just as as relevant outside of the church family because have you noticed how vicious our culture has become in pointing out things that are wrong with you and whoever else? Yeah. No wonder we keep them as secrets. No wonder we don't advertise our sinful nature. We don't want to give anyone ammo to bring it up ever. And so when someone speaks about sin, maybe they hint that there's a problem in our life. Our response is often, oh, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I'll tell you who does, but I don't have a problem with that. But denying our sinful nature, denying our fleshliness doesn't fix it. We know who we are, and we know what we're like, and we know what is in our hearts, and we don't like it. There's another response we take to it, and that is to squash it. And I don't mean squash it like a bug so it's gone, but we kind of try to crowd it out to get it out of our thinking. Maybe in our brain, we're kind of like, oh man, I'm really bothered by that sin that just keeps creeping into my life. I can't seem to overcome it. I know what I need to do. I just need to stop thinking about that. I just need to stop thinking about it. And we crowd it out. People try to crowd out their sinful nature, their fleshliness with religion. (laughs) 
with hobbies, with friends, with people, with busyness, with alcohol and other drugs, with family, with friendships, with pleasure. Even our job can be a way that we're kind of trying to avoid squashing out, crowding out the thoughts that we have that are probably from the Spirit of God that we need to look into our fleshly nature. And whenever we're doing that, you know, along the way, um, we know that it isn't working because that truth keeps coming through. It's just like that, that thing that just keeps poking its head up and, and, and we're confronted with what we've worked so hard to crowd out, our fleshliness, our sin. I'm guessing we've all done this one. <laughs> we tend to minimize it or make light of it. This is probably the most common way people cope with the darkness that they see in themselves. Hey, I'm only human, right? And and actually, I kind of deserve this. If you would see the things I'm not doing, you wouldn't be bothered so much by this thing I am doing. And if you would see the things, the stresses in my life, you would understand this isn't that big a deal. It's just not that big a deal. And inevitably, we compare ourselves to someone. We think, you know what? Well, compared to Charles Manson, I'm doing okay. Because we always pick from the bottom of the bucket whenever we're going to compare ourselves with someone. But it doesn't work. Because we still see our flesh when it acts out. This may be, you correct me later if you think of a, of a worse one. I think this is the worst response to our fleshliness that we sometimes do. We own it without regret. I mean, maybe we used to regret it, but we're tired of regretting it. And now when someone points out our sin, like Paul does in verse 3 to the Corinthians, when he says there's jealousy and there's strife here, rather than lowering our heads and saying, yeah, I know, you know. Instead of just that posture of, I know, I shouldn't be doing that. And we stand up straight and we say, well, that's just the way I am. And we kind of own it without any regret. I wish I could tell you I've not seen that among Christians, but I have. In fact, I've been that guy who owns it without regret. Happens more than we would like to admit, but it doesn't work. The Bible has this thing that it talks about called sanctification. (laughs) I need you this morning. This is not rocket surgery. Did you catch what I did there? This is not brain science. There, I did it again. Did you catch it yet? This isn't rocket science and it's not brain surgery, but it will take your attention. You'll need to pay attention here. When we're saved, our status before God changes. I'm going to say it again. When you're saved, your status before God changes. Your legal position before God is changed. God used to view you as guilty, but Christ took your guilt when he died on the cross, and when you received him, your guilt was washed away. When you turned to Jesus, God then began to see you differently. No longer does he see you as guilty, but you are not guilty. Our position has changed from guilty as charged to not guilty. Some people feel like, yeah. And that's what Christianity is all about. Getting your status changed so you can go to heaven. So that's pretty cool. Let's just wait till Jesus comes back or till we grow old and die and then we'll go to heaven. And that's kind of like what it's all about. But there's more than that. And part of the more 
has to do with being set free from the things you hate about you, your fleshly nature. And that entails this biblical thing called sanctification because sanctification and justification are two different things. Sanctification is not just how God views you, it is how you are. In the Bible, sanctification has kind of a dual meaning. It means separated from sin and dedicated to God. I'm going to give you an illustration. It's not in my notes, so hang on, because when I leave the notes, it's always a problem. I actually took that little bit out that I, when I wondered last week, I took it out of the online video, because if another preacher hears that, he'll be upset. You don't know what I'm talking about, and if you weren't here, you'll never know. (laughs) Here we go. This is not my notes, but let me tell it to you. I had a friend named Mark. He and his wife were serving at a small, small, small church in a rural area of New York. Laurel and I were friends with Mark and his wife, and we would go visit them, and they would come and visit us. One time we went to visit them, and they had some really nice videos, and I think it might have been snowy or cold. It was miserable outside. We really didn't have something to do. We had traveled a couple hours to their house, and I said, hey, let's watch this video. This is a really good movie. I don't know what movie it was. It was a clean movie. It was a nice movie. It was a good movie. Let's watch this movie. And Mark says, our VCRs broke. And I said, didn't you just tell me your church bought a VCR? And that was a really significant expense for them because I told you they were a small church, really struggling. And VCRs used to be like $500, so they spent a lot of money to buy this VCR. He, and he said, yeah, but... We did a dedication service. Now, here's what that means. When you buy something like that piano or or expensive organ or something like that, and you say, God God gave us this organ. God gave us this piano. We are going to dedicate this to his service. And so it's not unusual to wheel the organ over into the center of the floor and to say, we now set this organ aside. Or this piano. I can't decide it's a piano or an organ. Let's stay with piano. We, yeah, Laurel's shaking her head. You left your note, Shields. That's what she's saying. So you bring the, the piano over and you set it in the middle and you say, we're going to dedicate this to God. We now set this piano aside. It is now dedicated to God and his use. It is not, it is not for the sinful mundane things it might otherwise be used for, but it is dedicated to God and God alone. We sanctify, there's the word, this organ to the Lord, this piano. I can't say piano or organ, but you following me? Just nod, nod, tell me you got it. Tell me you got it or I'll do it again. Sanctification has in it the idea of being separated from the ordinary, the sinful especially, and being dedicated to the extraordinary, to God specifically. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification in our lives, practically speaking, is the event and processes whereby God empowers you to eliminate the things God wants to rid you of and to embrace the things which God wants you to embrace. And if you're born again, those are the very things you want to be rid of and the very things you want to embrace. It is a way God helps you treat people well, even other drivers. Sanctification is a means whereby God begins to purify your thought life. Sanctification is a process whereby he changes your motives in serving him. It is a decision whereby he helps you break your addictions. It is that which makes worship real and not some kind of objective like, I wonder how Drew and the worship team are going to do today. It makes it real. It is the way he rescues you from contempt. Sometimes, sometimes it seems that a person gets this when they're born again. 
You know what I mean? It's like they, they hear about Jesus, saying, hear that he died for their sins, and, and they're like, yeah, that's what I need. I need that. And, and so they want to follow Jesus, and they say, God, please forgive me for my sin. I Thank you for dying for me, Jesus. I will follow you. And it is almost as though at that moment, they are also walking with him on a level that most many of us could hardly even dream to walk that close to him. But that is very unusual in my observation of humankind. Very unusual. Most of us, we come to faith in Christ, we're like, yeah, I really need to be forgiven. And we have the feeling there and, and the desire there, but we're just uh, two or three days later struggling with a lot of things for the next 17 years. Hmm. Hmm. Well, let me talk to you about how to enter into sanctification. These, by the way, are taken from Dr. A.B. Simpson, the guy on the screen there. Rusty saw the guy on the screen there. He says, it's the same sermon as last week. (laughs) That man will not be on the screen next week because I'll be in Colorado. So these words I'm going to give you now are from Dr. Simpson, but they are not exactly his words. In fact, he would not use these words because he's writing 130 years ago. But let me just tell you the four things he says about entering into sanctification as a human being. Maybe the first step for all of us is just get real. Well, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. Get real, man. (laughs) You don't have a problem with that. Right, right. I really don't, you know. I'm I'm okay. If if, If you maintain that position that you don't need to change, sanctification will not happen in your life. Simpson says it this way. We must see for ourselves that we are not sanctified. And we must be sanctified if we would be happy. How's the old cliche go? (laughs) A lot of people are saved and satisfied. There's not quite so many who are saved and sanctified. If you don't see your need for this, then it won't happen for you. But when you find yourself not walking in a manner worthy of your calling, and you find yourself troubled by that reality, then Jesus has sanctification for you. It is the first and essential step to get real. And know for yourself that you are not where you need to be and that you must transition if you're going to be happy. That's step one. Step two, see Jesus as your sanctifier. Jesus is the sanctifier. I am not the sanctifier. I can't sanctify myself. I freely admit to you that I am profoundly incapable of living a sanctified life, of sanctifying myself. I can't do it, and neither can you. My flesh is addicted to sin, and it loves it. My heart, it does not behave the way it should. I feel like the Apostle Paul. There's a lot of questions about what was on the Apostle Paul when he wrote Romans 7 and Romans 8. What was on his mind? What was on the Apostle Paul's mind when he wrote that? I don't don't know, but look what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from my flesh? The answer, Paul knows, is Jesus. Jesus is our sanctifier. And he provided your sanctification just like he provided your salvation. He provided it on the cross. A couple chapters earlier, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the same group of Christians in Corinth, 
In verse 30, he says, and because of him, he's talking about God. He says, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You became two, I'm sorry, let me read that again. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus purchased those things. On the cross, he purchased things like your redemption. On the cross, he purchased things like your righteousness. On the cross, he made possible the spirit of wisdom to live in your life. And on the cross, he purchased as well your sanctification. Look at the verse on the screen. Christ Jesus, who became to us sanctification. Just as salvation is all about Jesus, the cleansing of our very lives is all about Jesus and not quite so much about you and me. So Dr. Simpson had this kind of novel thought. It was kind of a trademark of his to think this way. He would suggest that just as you receive Jesus as your Savior, it might be wise for you to take him as your sanctifier. That is a novel thought. Jesus, I take you as my Savior. Please save me. Save me from God's wrath. Save me from my sin. Jesus, I take you as my sanctifier. Please cleanse me. Cleanse me from sin and dedicate me to God. And in doing so, in doing so, you invite his sanctifying influence and power into your own heart, into your own life. Hmm. Step one, get real. Step two, See Jesus as your sanctifier. Step three, stand down, gentlemen and ladies. Stand down. I was talking to someone some time ago. He said, I will never fly in an airplane. And it wasn't that he's afraid to fly. It wasn't that he doesn't like the food. It, doesn't that he, it wasn't that he doesn't want to go through TSA. He wasn't a gun nut that was mad because they wouldn't like to take a gun on there. His thinking was this, I will never get on an airplane because I like to be in charge of me. The only way I get on is if they let me fly it. And he didn't know a thing about flying an airplane. But he wasn't going to get on one. I get it. Because I like to be in charge of me too. I don't like it when someone else is calling the shots. But if I'm going to deal with my flesh, I am going to have to let an expert fly the plane. Simpson said that we must make an entire surrender to him in everything. The old hymns talked about this all the time. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. All to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender all. We must make an entire surrender to him in everything. That means yielding to God. When you make that entire surrender to him, surrendering to Jesus, it it tends to... Adjust the way you manage your time. When you lay that down, bowing to Christ, it will mean reconsidering how you're handling your money. It will change the sense of mindness you have. It will rid you of that bondage. Yielding to God cannot help but change your marriage. And looking to Jesus for direction, bowing before him for direction, changes your media consumption, your internet habits. But you see, it's not you that's making those changes, and that's where we get convinced or confused 
Pastor Steve, you're saying I need to change my internet habits and yield to him in my marriage and do this and do that, and then I can be sanctified? Nope, I'm saying the opposite. Saying when you lay down to him and say, Jesus, I stand down. I stand down. You're the commander. Speak. And he begins to do that. You've been at the helm too long, buddy. (laughs) Sanctification means standing down. Letting Jesus pilot your life. Okay, so step one was get real. Step two is take Christ as your sanctifier. Step three, stand down, yield control to him. Step four, trust Jesus. Now listen, (laughs) you can do all these steps. Get real, see Jesus as your sanctifier, accept him as your sanctifier even. You can stand down. You can do these steps and then that's Sunday and Monday something happens that you have the worst week that you've had in years. And I'm not just talking about other people. I'm talking about you. You just fall flat on your face. You're like, what did I do Sunday? I'm laying here on my face in the gutter again. I failed remarkably miserably. And I will say to you, that's not just a remote prospect. That's quite possible that that will happen. And that is why you need to trust Jesus. Listen, you trust him when you feel like you're saved and you trust him when you don't feel like you're saved because you know your salvation depends entirely on him. So you can trust him when you're living like you're sanctified and you can trust him when you're struggling to live like you're sanctified because it depends entirely on him. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will do that. That last point, trust Jesus, it's not an afterthought. I mean, if this was a gun, that's the powder right there. That's the powder. It's essential. You must trust that just as your salvation depends entirely on the one who died for you, so your sanctification depends entirely on the one who died for you. When you get real and when you take him as your sanctifier and you stand down and give him the helm and you trust him, he changes things. Now, let me get real, real for a minute. I guarantee you that there's a couple of you here, maybe 50 of you here, that are saying, man, I've tried this before. I have tried everything and nothing works. I am stuck with this darkness. I can never free myself. Did you hear the last sentence you said? That makes you a prime candidate for what Christ is offering. An awareness that you can never do this yourself. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And really, the essence of the prayer is those four statements we just looked at. To pray acknowledging that you can't do this. To take him as your sanctifier. To stand down and let him call the shots. And to know it will be hard. And sometimes you'll fail, but you will trust him. That Dr. Simpson, was he was nobody's dummy. She's good stuff, isn't it? I want to pray before we have communion. I want to pray that we would, that we would do that. And I want to lead you in a prayer. And by the way, it's not the words. You got that, right? It's just like the sinner's prayer. 
sometimes people are like, oh, I don't believe in a sinner's prayer. No, but I believe in what's behind it, and it's the only way I know how to communicate what's behind it. Right? So it's not that these words, it's these four sentences up here, have meaning in and of themselves. But what they speak of is what I think our hearts need. So if you would, let's stand together as the worship team comes and prepares. And I want to give you that moment that we always have in communion where one examines oneself and before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And I want you to take a moment and say, is this something I need? Do I need to enter into sanctification? Do I need to yield my heart to him? And it's kind of funny. Different groups have different names for this. Campus Crusade for Christ in their little blue hymn with the dove on it called it Entering the Spirit-Filled Life. Sometimes some of my Southern Baptist friends called it uh, Falling Under the Lordship of Christ or Entering the Master's Life. Dr. Simpson, Wesley called it sanctification. Dr. Simpson called it Entering the Christ-like, Christ-Life. I really don't care what you call it. <laughs> Because it's not the words, it's what's behind them, where your heart is, right? So I'm going to pray out loud, and as your heart would like to do that, just in the silence of your thoughts, um, maybe you'll join me in that prayer. Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, I see that I cannot live the Christian life on my own. I've tried. I have arrogantly thought that I could. (laughs) I've seen other people mess up, but I thought I could do this. Forgive me for that arrogance. Forgive me for missing such an important thing that Christ is our sanctification. I cannot do the Christian life on my own. So Jesus, I take you as my Savior and as my sanctifier. I need your sanctifying power, your divine influence, your holy presence in my life. I want to enter this Christ life. I stand down. I yield to you. I want you to call the shots. I give you not just a a specific compartment of my life. I'm really good at compartmentalizing God. So I don't give you like this little toolbox I have with a place for the sockets and then keep the rest of it for myself. I give you the whole garage. Take my whole workshop. Take the whole thing. I want you to call the shots in it. I stand down. And I know I'll mess up. But I refuse to say, well, I'm only human. I trust you to transform me to your likeness, Jesus. Because I know that's what you, that's what you predestined us for, to be transformed to the likeness of God's Son. That's sanctification. Here's my heart. Make it happen. Not just this moment, but forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Please have a seat. Let's advance to the next slide. Yeah, communion. Thank you. So if you have your communion cup, uh, we're going to go ahead and take communion today. You've had that moment to examine yourself. In some churches, you have to be a member in order to take communion. That is not the case here at Kerwinsville Alliance. You simply should be one who's trusting in Christ. And we love you to take communion with us today. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. And afterward, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that I make. In my blood, he made that covenant. In other words, he's giving us himself. He's giving us salvation. 
He's giving us sanctification. Before we take the bread, I'm going to ask uh, one of the guys to say a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Josh, would you please do that? Let's bow our hearts together. Lord God, we thank you for the amazing work of the cross where our addiction to sin was overcome by your amazing display of mercy. God, we thank you for your workings then and your workings now within our lives. That our slate in your eyes, God, has been wiped clean and it has been filled with your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Josh, would you give that microphone to Milton, please? That which you hold in your hand represents the body of Christ. Let's take it together, the body of Christ. Scripture says that afterward he took the cup, and I'm going to ask Milton, one of our youth workers, if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ. Milton? Lord, I do give you thanks for the blood of Christ, which you shed for us on the cross and for our salvation and God for our sanctification as well and I I believe there are specific people who uh, you intended this message for and I pray that they would not walk out of here and just forget it when they get to the parking lot because I think we have all gone through the cycle of trying and failing to make to improve ourselves or remove those things we hate about ourselves and I know it can be frustrating and feel defeating but I pray uh, Lord that you especially for those people would give them an extra touch of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit live through them help them to take that back seat that they need to take and um I pray that they would start to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and start to feel successful and uh, continue their sanctification and all of ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The blood of Christ.